And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. We'll also have it projected up behind us. I'm going to pray for our time in the Word, and then we're going to dig in. So would you bow your hearts with me in prayer? Jesus, I pray that as we dig into your Scripture, that your Spirit would speak to our hearts, Lord. God, we want to know you and the power of your resurrection. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that I would not get in the way of what your spirit wants to do here, Lord. And God, I pray that each of us would leave here knowing Jesus a little bit more as a result of our time of fellowship in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Well, if you're anything like me, if you are going to invest in something, whether it be investing your time, your treasure, your talents, you need to know what it is that you're investing in and why it's worth investing your time into it before you even take a stab at it. If you get my mind and my heart to really believe something, and to get behind something, then my words and my actions are a lot more likely to follow. And I would guess that that's probably the same for most of you out there. And I think it goes for any of us. If we're going to do something that we really believe matters, and we're going to put our entire hearts into it, then we want to know why are we doing this thing and why is this worth investing my life into? So last week we started on a three-week mini-series taking ownership of your membership and we looked at the three P's of what and why church membership matters. First, we looked at the fact that we have been made into a people or we use the word family for that and we looked at the calling of Abraham and that it was a familial relationship described in the calling to Abraham but the gist of it was because of God's great love and delight he took a people who were formerly a rebellious people and he brought them into a familial relationship with himself by redeeming them through his son. And we also looked at how we as God's family are not called to live a life of isolation, but we are called to live out that familial relationship with God, that vertical relationship horizontally as we live it out with one another. And then we looked at the second P, which was price. We looked at the fact that we have been made a people with the most high because we have been purchased by quite a price. When God called Abraham and told him that he was going to call him to become a people, Abraham didn't really see it or he didn't really get a picture of it. The first glance that he got was really 10 chapters later after that call where you see a foreshadowing of that sacrifice when he's called to sacrifice Isaac. We see the first example, really, that we are a people who have been bought with a price. And that Old Testament picture of Isaac on Mount Moriah was just a picture of the, of the great price that would be paid to make us into a people, the sacrifice 
of God's Son. And lastly, we looked at purpose and to really go beyond the what we were called to and what it cost us to be called to it, we saw that we have been called with a purpose and maybe several purposes is the better way to put it. We saw that we cannot do this on our own, that we need each other. We saw that there is no higher purpose than the purpose that we are called to, and any other purpose is a cheap substitute. We saw that because you're a Christian that you should now have a new hunger. You should hunger for awe in your life and that awe is lived out in Christian community. We saw a Christian should be a grace junkie and that the church should be the place that you can look at and say grace is undoubtedly found in this place. We saw that throughout the book of Acts that Christians experienced Jesus together in community in ways that they could have never experienced them individually or apart. We saw that worship is the highest calling of any created being. We saw that we are created to need encouragement and the body of Christ is made to be the locus of that encouragement. We saw that one of the purposes that we've been placed into the church is we've been given gifts that we are called to exercise and to steward within the family of God. We saw that disciples are made in community and that they are not made in isolation. We saw that the church is important because we were created to need family relationships. We saw that we were designed to need each other to spur us on to love Jesus when it's difficult to love Jesus on our own. We were, saw that we were designed to need the church to help lift our eyes up to the things of heaven when our eyes would be fixated on the things of this earth. We saw that part of the responsibility of the church is to remind us regularly and daily that this world is not our home, that we've been given a greater purpose, that this is just a stopover, man. This is a spacesuit that we have been given, and we are made for another place. We saw that the church is called to always serve as a reminder of the radical, never relenting, never giving up, always pursuing, never changing love of God, and that God always adores his people as he adores us in Christ. And we saw that our need for family relationship was something to spur us on, to call us, to call others into that family relationship who do not yet know their father. So this week, as we enter week two of the mini-series, Taking Ownership of Your Membership, we're going to move on from defining what a church is and why a church is worth investing in. And this week, we're going to take it a step further to talk about what our involvement in the local church is supposed to look like. Since starting the church, I've held this belief that our church membership is really defined by four C's. First, we have a great calling. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, we have a great commission. 
We have been giving marching orders to go and take the gospel and make disciples of those who are not yet disciples and call them into the family of God. We have been given a great consideration. Not only have we been called to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, but we've been called to consider and love our neighbors as ourselves. And we've been called to live out the rest of the one another passages in Scripture in community because they can't be done in isolation. And we've been given a great covenant. God has called us to a new covenant and has given us a new heart. But he has also called us into a covenantal relationship with one another. So this week, we want to allow God, not culture, not consumerism, but God's word to define what membership in his church looks like. And to use this, we're going to use a pretty unusual passage. And I got to tell you, it was tough to pick a passage to teach about this because literally from cover to cover, the entire Bible is the story about God's rescue plan of coming to send his son to redeem a rebellious people back to himself and call us back into community with him and to live out that community with one another. So really, it's like you could play Bible roulette and just open to any page, and any page speaks to what we are going to be speaking about today and the great lengths that he went to rescue us and call us into community. So distilling that down to one passage was tough, but I think this passage will serve us quite well. So starting at Luke 10, I'm just going to read the verses that will go before the ones we're going to study. Starting in verse 21, it says... Oh, let's start in verse 17. It says, The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, and that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So like we looked at last week, rejoice over the fact that you're in the family book. That's the thing to be rejoicing over. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, all things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows who is the Son except the Father, or the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. As we looked at last week, that we only know because the Son has revealed this to us. And then turning to the disciples, he said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that you see what you see for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see but they did not see it or hear what you hear but they did not hear it so he's saying rejoice that you're part of a family don't rejoice in what's in the father's hands rejoice that there's going to come a day that you're going to get to see the father face to face rejoice that he chose you to be a part of his family 
And he's saying there's many people out there through many ages who have longed to see the things that you've gotten to see. Rejoice that he has called you to be able to see them. Redeemer family, are you rejoicing in those things today? Because uh, I'd like to see a couple smiles if you guys are rejoicing. Because I got some, some weird looking stares. So let me see some happy teeth if you guys are rejoicing in those reactions. You're a part of his family! Amen? Rejoice! And now Jesus is going to describe what membership in God's family should look like and how it should impact literally everything we do. And the passage starts off with a reminder that right relationship with Jesus and being a part of God's family changes everything. And there's no area of our life that should go unclaimed by this new relationship with Jesus Christ. Look with me starting in verse 25 and it says and behold a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and he said to him what's written in the law how do you read it I love how Jesus always answered a question with a question and he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and your neighbor as yourself and he said to him you've answered correctly do this and you'll live. So this young man comes up to Jesus and asks him something that appears to be a really good question on the surface. Good teacher, what is it that I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And even though it sounds like a good question, we should notice two little words right from the beginning. What must what? What does he say? What must I do? in order to inherit eternal life. And the parallel passages, he goes on and explains all kinds of stuff about what he does. He's very knowledgeable about the things that he's doing. He's very proud of the things that he's doing. He's not coming to Jesus, taking the low place, talking to Jesus as if Jesus is up here. He's coming to Jesus like he's about to put his arm around him, like these are two buddies saying, hey, we're both a couple of good dudes. So, what do you think, other good dude, that I should be doing to inherit eternal life? So this man half answers the questions correctly, but he bases his reflection on loving the Lord with all of his heart based on what he does for God. The way that we interact with Jesus has to change if we understand the gospel from being based on what we do for him to adoring him based on what he has done for us. I remember early on in my relationship with Christ, a friend asking me to tell him, how is it that I know that I love Jesus and to explain to him how I know that I love Jesus. So I told him all these things that I was doing. I said, I teach Sunday school every single week. I lead the college and career group at my church. I'm involved in three different Bible studies that I go to during the week. And I remember him really challenging me so much. 14 years ago, I still remember it as vividly as it was yesterday. He says, so it seems to me that all of your love for Jesus is based primarily off of what you do for him rather than anything that he's done for you. And it really threw me for a loop. 
I mean, in all of the answers that I gave him, there was not one part of the answer that I gave that had anything to do with what Jesus Christ had done for me. And I just want to ask you, Redeemer Fellowship, if I sat down with any one of you and I said, tell me, how do you know that you love Jesus? Explain to me your love for Jesus. Would you give me the laundry list of things that you do for him or would your mind go to the immovable rock and all of the things that he has done for you? And it was the truth. I didn't know how to define my relationship with Jesus apart from me. So really, all I knew how to do was talk about me. I didn't really understand how to talk about Jesus. And one of the ways that I've really learned to combat this, and please get this, if you don't get anything else and this is worth the price of admission, which is zero, so hopefully that's a discount. Um, I literally preach the gospel to myself daily. I remind myself I was not looking for God, but he came looking for me anyway. I remind myself I was not looking for a savior, yet he came and saved me anyway. I was still in love with my sin, yet in his kindness, he caused my sin to become repugnant to me and began to change my heart to help me be able to repent of the only things that I had known how to love up until that point. I didn't know anything about God, but he revealed more and more of himself to me daily and continues to do so. Even when I began reading the scriptures, I remember calling accountability partners saying, I don't understand this book. It's so confusing. And they said, just continue to read. And he's so good. And his spirit, he'll begin to make you understand. And he did. And my sin was literally killing me. But Jesus took the death that I deserved and was willing to give me his life instead. And I spent all of my life up until that point trying to live life on my own terms, but he gave me eternal life on his terms instead. So the way that I learned to combat the gospel of Eric being all about Eric was to begin to start my day by preaching the gospel of Jesus being all about Jesus and to not let my feet touch the ground in the morning until I have preached the gospel to myself. And when you start to remind yourself of all of that, then your love for God becomes much more based on what he's done for you rather than the fickle offerings that are constantly going to be changing about what it is that you can do for him. If the church that you're at focuses more about what you are supposed to do for God than what God in Christ has done for you, then you're not in a church that's worth being a member of. I want to make that just so clear. If the church, if you're here visiting, if, if you go to a church that talks more about what you're supposed to do for God than what God in Christ has done for you, you are not at a gospel preaching church and you should leave that church. Thankfully, it's been so long since I've been in that world. But if a church is preaching more about what we need to do to please God, rather than all that God has done in Christ to be pleased with us already, then they're not even preaching the gospel. If you can make it through a whole sermon without the preacher saying God in Christ is pleased with you, 
He's done it all. And he stands fully pleased because he's fully pleased with Christ. Then you haven't heard the gospel being preached. I was recently sitting at Barnes and Noble and there was this Pharisee sitting next to me. And he was preaching to this group of old men, telling them all that they needed to do to be in right relationship with God. And basically, he was taking the question that the man asked in this passage, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he was focusing all on what we must do. So I actually interrupted him and I was like, excuse me, Pharisee. But the gospel is supposed to mean good news, and the trash that you're preaching is bad news. So I'm sorry, gentlemen who are sitting by him, but you have just been lied to by this guy for the last half hour, and I couldn't take it any longer, so please just throw his stuff back into the pit of hell where it belongs. And now let me tell you the good news, that it's not about what you could do, because you could never do enough, but it's about what Jesus Christ has already done and he's already accomplished it. That's the gospel. If our good news is a story about you, then it's not the gospel. If your good news is a story about your change, your works, that's not the gospel. If your good news is about you telling the teacher what you've done to inherit eternal life, that is not good news. We're going to spend the third and final week of the series looking at a local church that's actually worth being a member of. So first we hit on why on the local church, and we hit the local church and why it's worth investing in. This week we're going to look at what healthy investment in that local church looks like. And next week we're going to talk about what a healthy place that's actually worth investing in. Is supposed to look like according to the scripture but the first part of allowing God to define what right and proper membership looks like is right belief on the right good news it's not a story of what we must do to inherit eternal life because even with the answer that the man gave check this out Jesus was being gracious to him but we see Jesus kind of teasing out of him showing him Hey, your answer's not as right as you thought it was. But Jesus is gracious in the way that he does it. Check this out. You can never love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength enough in order to inherit eternal life. So even if the guy's answer was correct, there was no chance that he would have been able to do it. We are not capable of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. A great preacher named George Whitfield said... I'm so sinful that even my repentance needs repenting of. <laughs> Boy, could I understand where he was coming from on that. So God gave us his entire heart since our hearts were incapable of doing it. God gave us his heart when he gave us Jesus. God purchased our soul because we couldn't purchase our own soul through living a sinless life. God knew that we couldn't perfectly fix our eyes on God, so he never deviated when he walked the earth, and Jesus never took his eyes off of the Father, even at his most difficult moment, where he's saying, Father, if it's possible, please let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I'm not going to take my eyes off of you. Your will 
be done. God knew that we would never be able to love him with all of our strength. So guess what? Jesus loved the Father with all of his strength and accredited that love on your behalf. Even though it meant sweating blood in the garden, carrying an old rugged crossbeam, and enduring the full weight of the Father's wrath on your behalf. But we're going to see in the way that Jesus drove out, draws out this man, that our new family relationship with God and with his family is actually supposed to touch every single aspect of our lives. Redeemer Fellowship, hear me on this. If you're here this morning, there is no such thing as Sunday morning Christianity. That does not exist. A relationship with Jesus changes everything. So the first question I would ask you in terms of allowing God to define what church membership is supposed to look like is does your relationship with Jesus Christ impact each and every aspect of your life? Do you have anything hidden as if he's not going to be able to see it? Do you have something where, like Achan? Hey, we'll give everything. I'm going to be like Achan and try to bury this thing over here. Nobody's going to care if I just bury this little bit over here. Relationship with Jesus, membership in his family, is supposed to impact each and every aspect of your life. And let me give you a little disclaimer on that. That doesn't mean that we live in a church world bubble. Okay? That's the way I thought that it meant. I was like, if Jesus is supposed to impact every area of my life, well, then if I just never leave the church, then it's got to impact every area of my life. Well, if that was true, then all of those people that you meet that never leave the church would be the saintliest folks that you've ever met, not the crustiest folks that you've ever met. So, I'm not saying that they are, just saying that they are. Um, so, I've known people who have made church their whole life yet have still managed to isolate significant parts of their hearts from Jesus. Making Jesus your whole life and making church your whole life are not synonyms, folks. We need to be able to understand this. Though if Jesus is impacting every aspect of your life, you should have an increasing desire to be around God's people. I increasingly meet people who claim that they love Jesus, but they are cynical towards other Christians, and they are cynical towards the church of God. And if that's you, then I'm just going to, I want to, be, I want to shoot so straight with you. If that's you, and you're here, and you're growing in cynicism towards other Christians and towards the church... If that is you, then there is some area that you are not allowing Jesus to impact your life because cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. I feel like I need to express that because I feel like we're living in an increasingly cynical culture. And if you're growing in cynicism, that means you're growing in the flesh. You're not growing in the Spirit. But anyway, back to my original question. Does your relationship with Jesus impact every 
area of where you view life. That's what Jesus is doing with this guy. He's starting to break him down. He's saying, you're asking me a question. Well, I'm going to start to hit on the nitty-gritty with you and see if it's really impacting your life where it hurts. That's the way Jesus responds to this guy because he loves him. This guy wants to know what it looks like to have a relationship with God. So Jesus tells him this story to point out the fact that he's been rather okay with isolating large parts of his heart from God while still trying to claim as if he had some sort of religious affection for God. As if he's saying, God, you can have control over all the religious-looking stuff in my life, but not the day-to-day stuff, such as how I interact with other people that don't look like me. And when we're talking about allowing the Bible to define church membership, that's what it means. It allows, it means allowing God to define every aspect of our lives. God defines you. Christian defines you. It's all his. And then right belief should impact the way that we relate to other people in community. Look with me at verses 29 through 37. It says, but he, desiring to answer, justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, and leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise a Levite. And when he came to that place, he saw him and passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his animal, and he brought him in and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. One of the big mistakes that people make when they try to preach Luke 10 is they chop it up as if this is three separate stories taking place in one passage. But this is just one story where Jesus is giving an elongated answer to the guy's question. And Jesus is trying to show him, you can't claim to love God, but not let that love extend to the way that we one another with each other. Luke's whole point in putting this parable right after the parable about the lawyer asking the question is to show that right belief in God should rightly impact the way that we relate to one another in our community. If you only believe the right stuff, but your relationship with God does not impact the way that you live with others, then it calls into reality whether you really have a relationship with God to begin with. And that's not me saying that. That's Jesus saying that in verses 29 through 37. Look, I've met some nasty Christians over the years. I'm just going to be frank with you. I've met some people that I'm like, man, please don't tell anyone else that you're a Christian. Because you are a walking billboard for atheism, the way that you live your life. There should be no such thing as a nasty Christian. Because nastiness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Amen? So if I ever catch you being nasty, I am going to just 
let you know for short that you are being a billboard for atheism. So if we really believe in what the church is, and you really believe in why it's worth investing, then it should have a deep impact on the way that we interact with one another. So check this out. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this successfully, but I'm going to try. There are 59 one another commandments in the New Testament, and I'm going to try to cover all of them in three minutes or less. I've broken them down into 20 categories because they're not all different. So first, we're to love one another. John 13, 34, 35, John 15, 12, 15, 17, Romans 13, 18, 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and 4, 9, 1 Peter 3, 8, and 4, 8, 1 John 3, 11, 3, 23, 4, 7, 4, 11, 4, 12, and 2 John 5. We're to live at peace with one another. Mark 9.50 and Galatians 5.15. We're to be servants of one another. John 13.14. We are to be devoted to one another in love. Romans 12.10. We are to honor one another as greater than ourselves. Philippians 2.3. Romans 12.10. 1 Peter 5.5. We're to live in harmony with one another. Romans 12.16. Galatians 5.15. 1 Peter 3.8. We're to stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 14.13. We are to accept one another as Christ has accepted us. Romans 15, 7. We are to instruct one another and teach one another. Romans 15, 14. Colossians 3, 16. We're to go out of, one, out of our way to greet one another and show one another hospitality. Romans 16, 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. And 1 Peter 5, 14. We're to help care for one another's needs in the body. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. We're to serve one another in love. Galatians 5, 13. 1 Peter 4, 10. We are to refrain from backbiting and slandering one another the way that the world does, Galatians 5.15. We are supposed to be encouragers to one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, 5.11, and Hebrews 10.25. We're supposed to forgive one another in Christ the way that he has forgiven us, Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13. We should live in patience towards one another, Ephesians 4.2, 1 Peter 3.8. We're to spur one another on to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10.24. We are supposed to refuse to grumble against one another, James 5.9. We are to confess our sins to one another, James 5.16, and we should seek to carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. That's what the one anothering in the Bible is supposed to look like when we let the Bible define it and not culture. Amen? So healthy belief that is held to on a heart level should become healthy membership resulting in healthy community, and there should be tangible manifestations of the way that we engage one another. Notice the first people in the story. They were too busy to be involved in one anothering. They see somebody's needs, but they're like, hey, I don't have the time for this because I'm too busy living the same life of everybody else living the rat race on the Jersey Shore, so why should I stop and actually care for one else? The next people were too religious to be involved in one anothering. If busyness and religiosity are keeping you from being able to invest Jesus in other people's lives, you are allowing culture to dictate your Christianity and not the Bible. I want to repeat that. If busyness and religiosity are keeping you from being able to invest Jesus in other people's lives, you're allowing, you're allowing culture to dictate the way that you live your Christianity, not the Bible. And I remember the first time that really hit me. I was going to six Bible studies a week. I'm not kidding. I was leading five of them, super Christian over here, right? And my neighbor came out, and he had a broken arm, newly broken. 
And he said, hey, Eric, how you doing? I had to give him the, hey, guy. My neighbor took the time to knew me, but I didn't take the time to even know who he was or care about his infirmity. Yet here I was off to another Bible study, off to another religious function, stepping over this man literally like the Levite in this parable was doing. And notice that both examples given in this passage stem from sacrifice. We're to sacrificially care for one another. A biblical member should sacrificially be able to love somebody who's unlovable. I can't tell you how sick I am of Christians who feel the need to make phone calls or texts or emails to tell you why I can't love this person that's difficult to love. It's your job! Read the Bible! You're supposed to love people that are unlovable. If you're only supposed to love the lovable, then why are you even a Christian? It blows my mind. That's where we get to show we're different than everybody else. I don't just love people that look like me, act like me, think like me, do like me. I've been given a supernatural power by Jesus Christ himself to be able to go and love people that are not like me. A biblical member should be able to sacrificially bear up with people that are not like them. Look, check this out. That picture of the wounded person on the side of the road is you. We are the wounded person on the side of the road. We are the ones that could not pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and save ourselves. We were the ones where the religious people that came by were not able to save us. We were the ones who needed a stranger to come from a foreign land and to come and pick us up and breathe life into us. We were the ones that were not even able to contribute to being able to pay some of our own debt. So Jesus was the one who put us on his back, carried us, paid the debt, and said if there's anything else, credit it to my account. That was us. The Samaritan was Jesus. And that's what Jesus is asking. Who's the one that you want to look like? The religious one stepping over people on your way to being religious. Or the Christ-like one who took on the needs of another. And now Christ has set the example of what it means to really shoulder one another's burdens in love, to consider one another's as greater than yourselves in love, to honor others as greater than ourselves in love, and to sacrifice for the sake of one another in love. And let me close with this. The way that we relate to others, if it's coming out of a true relationship with God, it should lead to a pure motive. Look at verses 38 through 40. It's amazing that so many people preach this passage as if it's not attached to the passage right before it. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed them into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving, kind of like the guys in verses 29 and 37. Hmm, it's almost like it's contextually tied together. But Martha was distracted with the much serving, and she went out and said to him, Lord, don't you care how awesome I am? Tell her to get up and also see how awesome I am. And Jesus said, Martha, stop it. You are worried and anxious 
about so many things. There's only one thing that's necessary, and your sister has chosen it, and she's right here at my feet. This is another story that's so often taught in isolation, but this passage is actually supposed to be the application of the two previous passages that went before it, not taught in isolation. I have met people who spend so much time on their relationship with God. But listen, if it doesn't come from right motive, it doesn't lead to healthy membership. And you end up being frustrated. And God, don't you see all that I'm doing for you? But they're not doing the same stuff. Why aren't you blessing me? I have met so many people who spend their life doing for others, but don't do so for the right motive. Therefore, it doesn't lead to healthy membership. Don't you see me serving, Lord? Hey, God, since I'm boss here, can't you tell her to get up and her to start doing something? Let me just tell you, if that's you and you're serving, I just want you to know you're not serving them, you're serving you. If you're doing a lot of stuff for God or a lot of stuff for others, but you're doing it with a bitter and frustrated attitude, you might want to consider the motivations behind the things that you're claiming are being done for God and consider how they might be meeting a need within yourself that you feel is being unmet. So a couple of application points as we close. Can you point to an area where you are isolating and not connecting to your relationship with Jesus? You're saying, this is just my Aiken's gold over here, and we're just going to hide this. Jesus can have all this, but this is the area that Jesus can't have. Is your relationship with Jesus and the way that you believe that Jesus relates to you reflecting in the way that you relate to others in community? That's a big question. If we really believe that he is the God of infinite grace. And check this out. You want to hear something awesome? If you came here absolutely at your worst, but you're in Christ, God loves you the same as he did when you were on your best day. Isn't that awesome? If you came here with a full knowledge of the head full of sin that you committed yesterday, but you were in Christ, Christ loves you the same as that day that you spent on your knees. Isn't that awesome? Shouldn't that love be extended to others if we want to be loved like that? Can you point to any area of your membership that's costly and actually sacrificial, actually causing you to sacrifice in your one anothering the way that it's supposed to be? And does the fruit that's coming out of your life show that it's something that stems from intimacy in the presence of Jesus? Or that it's something that comes from identity that stems from your flesh. Jesus, thank you so much that our identity is squarely rooted in you. That you love us the same on our worst day and our best day. Because we didn't have to impress you to get your love. You looked at Jesus and said, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Thank you that we're able to be found in him, our greatest glory and only glory. In Jesus' name we pray.